The Doctrine of Discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco and a descendant of white settlers. I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help to start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. This episode is a continuation of episode number three, in which we continue the exploration of indigenous cosmology versus a Western worldview. All right. So good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Sherry. I wanted to continue our conversation about reverence from our last time we talked. And I'm wondering if you could just restate this difference you mentioned last time between reverence and faith. I just thought that was so interesting. You bet. So I've been taught by indigenous elders to value reverence. And in my Christian upbringing, I was trained to value faith. So from my point of view, Faith is believing in something that I can't see or that I can't prove with my senses. So in spite of overwhelming doubt, I believe anyways. And reverence is kind of a different idea. It's about deep respect. Reverence is deep respect for the created world and your place in it. So faith, I think, is meaningless in an indigenous cosmology. The creator is evident in creation and creation surrounds me. I am part of it. And humility is acknowledging that I'm not separate from creation. I am part of a web of life. And I have also been taught that mutual dependence is a gift, that life is a gift. So that sort of tension of saying, hey, I believe in this thing, even though I can't see it. And the cosmology of reverence, um, I can see it. It's right there. I really love that, Sarah. I also was raised uh, to believe that faith is this... uh it's this leap of faith you have to make because you can't see it. So you have to make this almost existential leap of faith to believe in what you can't see. And yet I feel like there was a way in which growing up in this really beautiful rural area, I saw evidence of the creator and what I have heard some Native American folks talk about is like natural law, like natural law surrounds me. You can see the creator everywhere and you can see the way we're supposed to be. If you can just pay attention closely to nature, you can see how we're supposed to be living. You can see what keeps us in balance with nature and what doesn't. And you can see the right path forward. So I just love your naming this. I think that uh, for so many people I meet in my life as a pastor, this idea that faith is believing in something I can't see and maybe something that doesn't even seem very rational. And I'm not saying that, you know, faith should be rational because a lot of times it isn't, but it's a roadblock to them. And what you're describing is just about participating in life. Yeah. Reverence for me is acknowledging that the creator and the nature of the creator is embedded in creation. So I live on an organic beef ranch and we raise beef, you know, we raise natural beef. 
And so I have a lot of people who visit our place, sometimes groups of students and so on. And from time to time, I, I encounter people who criticize participation in growing and harvesting animals. And I feel a deep sense of connection to the animals that I'm part of raising. Honestly, I've actually considered becoming a vegetarian because of my connection to the animals that I raise. So I, I understand that point of view. But I kind of want to talk through a thought experiment here. Um, we've converted 200 acres, which is this plot of land, basically five pastures. We conserve water and native grasses and et cetera. And actually what we've done is create this habitat for a bunch of animals as a byproduct of raising natural beef. So if we were to convert our fields to corn or wheat or soybeans, which are the primary crops consumed in a vegetarian diet, habitat for dozens of species of birds and mammals, amphibians, reptiles, and insects would vanish. So the animals that make this land where I live their home would die along with their habitat if we were to raise soy or corn or wheat. If we did that, we would also have to use fossil fuels in that production of food, which we don't do now. We use very little fossil fuel in the maintenance of our place. And so we would use an additional 25 million gallons of water every month. We would have to drain the wetland that acts as the natural filtration system and it's home to traditional plants like wapato and tule and willow. We would affect the death of thousands of animals, which would further shrink a vital habitat that's already dwindling in response to large-scale agriculture. So I'm not trying to say that growing beef is justifiable at all. I'm not making that case. But what I am saying is that whether I choose to eat beef or soy, I am part of a food web that has an impact on animals. I can't be separate from that food web. In order for my family to eat, plants and animals must be sacrificed. And that acknowledgement that I am part of creation, I am not and cannot be separate from it, um, and that it's not subordinate to me. It is me. I am it. That is an understanding of reverence, who begins to sort of approach this understanding of reverence. In an indigenous cosmology, I should say maybe perhaps my cosmology, creation did not occur in six days. It's an ongoing process. Creation is ongoing constantly. And reverence is demonstrating deep respect for the plants and animals required to sustain my life and the lives of my family members. Reverence doesn't happen once a week. It's practiced each day faithfully, moment by moment. It's acknowledging that we are dependent on the systems of life and they are not subordinate to us as human beings or our will. I've been taught to give thanks every single morning for life itself. The Yakima people, which is the people where I live here in central Washington, they give thanks for water before every single meal. And Washington is a state rich in water in the region where we are. It's a dry desert. But even so, I mean, we're giving thanks for water habitually. And it's a practice of making reverence a habit. So whereas faith is looking forward to something that hasn't yet happened, reverence is about acknowledging what is happening right now, the miracle of life that is happening now that enables me to live and exist. I love that, Sarah. I don't know. I was just thinking, Sherry, about from my point of view, you know, living here in 
in the land where I live and the natural environment and the people that surrounds me in my own community, you know, that's really what I want to do and how I want to spend my time. And that's, you know, the longing of my heart is to be here in my community, living and with my family and working with the doctrine of discovery. I want to say was not really part of my plan or, or, or the way I think about myself. In fact, it's been, it's been a challenge. I want to say, I feel like I've been walking in the shadow of the doctrine of discovery since 2011, when I was called to write the statement on the doctrine of discovery and its enduring impact on indigenous peoples on behalf of the world council of churches, you know, that has felt very much like, you know, carrying the ring to Mordor. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh yeah. Frodo Baggins is carrying, you know, this ring to Mordor. Basically the, the idea there, this is in the Fellowship of the Ring trilogy. The idea is he has to take this ring of power and go destroy it in Mordor. He has to throw it back into, um, I don't know, I guess the fiery volcano where it was forged. And every step he takes closer to Mordor, the ring gets heavier and heavier. And I think Working with the Doctrine of Discovery has felt like that. It has caused me to examine carefully how Christianity as a system has justified genocide, basically. The mm -hmm. genocide of my people as a Christian woman, as a proclaiming Christian woman, that's been hard. That's been really hard to negotiate within myself and then to talk about with a lot of other people, you know, so coming to the church and, and being in church settings, because I very much also consider the church to be my people and saying, Hey, you know, I want to, I want you to consider how these systems of thought have really sought to destroy my people and continue to do that <laughs> has been hard. Yeah. I and mean, it's been a very difficult conversation to have. And I guess, as we we're just talking about, you know, the community where I live, I just think, Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, it's hard to step away and do this kind of work. Well, I mean, I know the Doctrine of Discovery was, like, that wasn't something you had heard about until, I don't know, a decade ago, more than that. But as you have learned more about the Doctrine of Discovery, and you've learned more about how the justification for it is embedded in Christian scripture and Christian theology, can you say more about that? And as you said, how Christianity is so implicated in this? Over the years, actually, many people have argued that papal bulls that form the foundation of the doctrine of discovery were a distortion of gospel. So let me just step back and say what a papal bull is. I'm just going to stick with the 14th and 15th century. International law was the law of the Catholic Church or the Holy Roman Empire. So popes were able to basically write international law, and they were called bulls or these sort of edicts that were written by popes. Some of the early documents of the Doctrine of Discovery were a series of papal bulls. And so there are Christians today that say that those papal bulls were a distortion of Christian theology, of what I would call the Christian gospel and Christian theology. But my careful read of the Exodus story really challenges that. While the commandments in Deuteronomy in chapter 5 make it clear that murder and theft is wrong and covetousness is wrong. Chapter six and seven in the same book of Deuteronomy make a clear justification and a program for genocide. And I guess I, I want to talk about that, Sherry, and I know that's dark and, and challenging, but I also want to say here, I want to just delineate between 
Jewish scripture and theology and Christian scripture and theology. And what I want to talk about here is a Christian understanding of these Jewish texts and how that Christian understanding has formed a theology that is the doctrine of discovery. It's led to massive genocide um, for my people and for many peoples on the earth. Yeah, I appreciate your saying that because I know that Jewish people have their own ways of struggling with these texts in Deuteronomy that I think very clearly justify genocide. I know they have their own way of struggling with that, but they were not the people who went on to colonize practically the entire world. We're talking about the way Christian theology used those texts and others to basically make the justification for colonization and genocide. So I think that's a really important distinction, and I'm glad you named that. But, you know, there's some stuff, the words in Deuteronomy, I think it's verses 10 to 12 of chapter 6, and then later on, I mean, they're really striking words. And yes, I've read this before, but I think it's actually good to read this out loud and just so people can hear what it actually says. Okay, so this is Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 to 12. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So to me, that just really juxtaposed the fact that the story of God bringing the people of Israel out of slavery, which has been such a foundational story of liberation for the Jewish people and also for African-American people. So that's in the story. And then just the colonization is right there. I'm going to give you this land that belongs to other people that built houses there and that dug wells. And wow, it's just right there. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, Sherry, I have trouble relating to Deuteronomy and to the the liberation story in Deuteronomy, which is where Israel is brought out of Egypt. In my cosmology, as a woman indigenous to North America, I am one of them. I'm one of the invaded, invaded by a people that are presumed to be the chosen of God. I am from the people who built the cities in my home area of northern New Mexico, those cities were made of clay on the crest of cliffs and mesas, and those were seized by the Spanish. I'm from the people who originally lived in homes with good things in, in the river valley of what's now called the Rio Grande. And my people dug the wells in the desert that have been used and depleted by others for more than 500 years. The people who planted the fields of corn and tobacco and the vines of squash and beans, the first people who were satisfied by those four sacred plants hard to relate to a colonizing force that is encouraged, as described, you know, as you read, to destroy us totally. And so I, I want to just go on to this text in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. So you were just reading in chapter 6, and here's what verses 2 through 5 say in chapter 7, when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters 
to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do with them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their poles and burn their idols in the fire. So the Ten Commandments are clear in chapter 6. You shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. But in chapter 7, just a handful of verses later, genocide is justified. it's good to name how that becomes a core basis of the doctrine of discovery. I think what's important to say is that an important premise of the doctrine of discovery is that God made a covenant originally with Israel, God's chosen people. We just were you know, hearing about that. But then with the coming of Jesus, God's chosen become the church. So Israel's kind of, you know, forget you, now it's the church. So the church then becomes the chosen people who have a covenant with God. And then they are justified and empowered to go into their promised land, lands around the globe, right, that were uninhabited by a Christian prince. I want to say that clearly because I can hear some Christians saying, well, you know, all that horrible stuff you're reading in Deuteronomy, it's been supplanted by the gospel, by the New Testament, which, you know, frankly, is its own form of skirting on the edge of anti-Semitism. Like, oh, there's that bad Old Testament where all sorts of, you know, God is so angry and killing people all the time and telling you to kill people. And then there's our New Testament where God is all love and light. I don't want to get too deep into that, but I, I want to just name the way that Christians took that story and how they then reconfigured and made themselves the new chosen people who then were justified to go into these promised lands. Sherry, we, right? Because I'm a Christian, so I'm going to say, yeah, Christianity did that. I'm part of that, too. <laughs> you know, it's also part of the system of thought that, yeah. that I have been taught. Yeah. You know, this doctrine of discovery has been formalized in laws and policies and also in our culture. Manifest Destiny itself in the United States is really talking about this understanding that God has empowered us as Americans, as U.S. citizens, to colonize the entire continent. And that's based in this idea, the doctrine of discovery, that Christians have a moral right and obligation to conquer whatever is there, and that God has given this to Christians to do. God has given this land of North America to Christians as God's chosen people. We see this legalized land theft and colonization that continues on today. My husband, um, Dan, and I have struggled alongside indigenous peoples, including the Wayana and the Matawai people in Suriname and the and French Guiana and the Guiana Shield. 
and they're removed from their lands. Their lands are militarized, so the military is put there to make sure that resources can be taken out efficiently. Their lands are poisoned. These folks are killed. Their lands are deforested and contaminated in the name of economic development. And so there are laws in place that make this possible that are rooted in this original understanding of the doctrine of discovery, which is who has the right to own land? Who has the right to own and develop land? This is a conversation that is ongoing, and it's not a story that's specific to South America or to North America, but it goes on around the world. Indigenous peoples have reached out to us from other places, too, asking for help from Nicaragua, from the Philippines, Guatemala, Mexico, and from many other countries, including the United States. I actually just said this to somebody last night. I think it was as late as 2005 that Ruth Bader Ginsburg basically cited the doctrine of discovery or the way it was incorporated into U.S. law in the case of Johnson v. McIntosh. She cited that in 2005. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. This is legal precedent that is still ongoing and is still being cited even by progressive paragons like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. Over these years, I've been struggling with the doctrine. It's difficult to understand how the pollution of the lands and bodies of my friends and the seizure of their homes is completely legal. The current system of international law is based on the doctrine of discovery, just as you said, Sherry, and that doctrine determines who is worthy of owning and improving land. And in that body of policy, the people who are worthy are Europeans, specifically Christians. It's a hard message. It's a hard message to hear. And I think a question that comes up a fair amount is, how do I square this story of genocide, which is an ongoing story with the good news of the gospel? One of the ways I think about that is thinking about the mandate of Jesus. What did Jesus say his mandate was? He speaks his mandate from the prophet Isaiah in Luke chapter 4 where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has set me to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. From my point of view, what Jesus is stating there is something completely different from this narrative of, of domination and genocide. I feel connected to to this mandate that Jesus proclaims. And yet I know you still had to do quite a bit of your own theological work, I guess I would say, to identify. I mean, you deeply identify as a follower of Jesus. And I know you've had to do your own theological work to square your Christianity with also being an Indigenous woman. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about how how you managed to do that, because I know you've done some work. George Tinker, he's the author of American Indian Liberation, A Theology of Sovereignty. He says that each people is entitled to bring its own testament or the stories of its own people to the mandate of Jesus. You know, one of the things Tinker says is that we are able to reinterpret the history of our own people through the lens of 
Jesus mandates. He says, each of us peoples of earth can imagine what the gospel of Christ means in the context of our own Testament. And I think that's been really life-giving for me to say, hey, you know, I may have trouble relating to the geography and the tradition of the history that's expressed in the book of Exodus, but what does this mean? What does Christ's mandate mean in the context of my own history and my own people and my own land? And he goes on to say, specifically, we need to find the courage and the strength to insist as whole communities that our traditional perspectives and experiences of the sacred are just as valid as the perspectives of the colonial Christianity imposed on our ancestors and enforced. So he offers, George Tinker offers me the opportunity to claim the humanity of my people outside the narrative of the Exodus story by holding up the history of my own people alongside the life message and mandate of Jesus. It's like you get to have your own origin story and history. And I do have my own origin story and history. And so what he's saying is it's okay to incorporate that with my Christian faith. It's undisputed. I mean, my, the people that I am from also have their own spirituality and, and story. That is also good news that is inspired. That spirituality that's brought to my people is also brought by the creator and is part of the story of the creator. So one of the things I found to be really challenging too is that I encounter theologians that argue that the supposed genocide of Canaanites never took place historically. So just looking back at the Exodus story, that that never actually historically took place. But from my point of view, it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, you could argue what occurred or what didn't. It doesn't matter because 17th century Puritans' use of the Exodus story empowered the murder of indigenous peoples in New England and gave birth to manifest destiny and American exceptionalism in the United States. For American mm -hmm. Indians and indigenous peoples around the world, the Exodus story is one in which we are the Canaanites, not the Israelites, and the system of thought can't be disputed. There's some statement that my husband, who's a sociologist of religion, says something along the lines of, the thing perceived is real in its effects. In other words, whether that story happened or not, it was perceived to happen that way by the people who have incorporated it into their theology. And the effects of that theology and the doctrine of discovery are real. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So at a recent faith gathering, an indigenous leader asked me, how can you be an Indian and a Christian after everything that's been done to us? And, you know, it's a good question. Um, and especially as a scholar of the doctrine <laughs> that has justified the eradication of my people. So this is back to carrying that ring to Mordor. How do I manage this? It, it, it's not only justified the eradication of my people, it remains the economic and political justification for continuing to do so. I'm a Christian because I'm compelled by the mandate and example of Jesus. And I'm a Christian because I, I love Jesus. I cling to the hope that he proclaims good news for the poor, the release of prisoners, and liberation. Sarah, that was um, felt like a privilege to be brought into how you have been able to deeply, deeply claim Jesus and also be an indigenous woman with your own 
history and story. It's just, it was really a, a privilege to hear that, how you've been on that journey and where you are and where you've landed with it. I don't know that there's anywhere better to land than liberation for the oppressed. One final note here is that um, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus also says this, do you suppose I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For there will be from now on five divided in one house, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And so although that may sound, oh, jarring, what does this have to do with (laughs) liberation? I want to say these words are also a message of hope and liberation for the oppressed. So this idea that there is no expectation that we will conform with this juggernaut, this system of thought that defines one people as superior to all the rest and the complete subordination of vulnerable peoples. Jesus is telling us here that he has come to bring this message that is jarring and uncomfortable and divisive. That brings hope to the oppressed. Well, and Sarah, you just live that out so much in your life. You and Dan, your whole life has been formed around liberation for the oppressed. And you have experienced many times the divisiveness of that message. I think it's really good to uh, normalize the divisiveness of this message. It just can sound so la-di-da, you know, butterflies and ponies, liberation for the oppressed. (laughs) But... It is divisive, and it is jarring. And I know, as I have taken this journey with you in looking at the doctrine of discovery and the way it forms the deep structure of our world, I have been jarred, and I have felt divided within myself, and it's not been comfortable. It's hard to look at. And I thank you for just continuing to call me and call us to that place of discomfort that is also liberation. So thank you for holding the truth of this. Yeah, thank you, Sherry. And I just appreciate our friendship and our conversations. Thank you for for holding this. This podcast is hosted by us co-produced by the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Audio editing was done by Shannon Kaler. And theme music by Micah Peplo and Shannon. Thank you. Thank you.